Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can hear me, right? Great. Uh, thank you so much for the privilege of uh, having me this morning and giving me that opportunity to share a little bit of my heart. My name is Ryan Karp. I'm a missionary with Chosen People Ministries, and I, I say that word knowing that some people don't like it, some people don't care. I like the word because it tells what I do. I share the gospel with Jewish people, and I try to help other people do the exact same thing. I feel like I have to say that also when I speak, because a lot of times when I speak, you know, and I'm, granted, I'm not usually speaking to Messianic communities. I'm usually speaking in churches that love the Jewish people. And so what I'm doing is connecting their scripture with our heritage, the heritage of the Jewish people. And so they go, okay, is that what you do? Meaning, do you come and teach Christians the Jewishness of the Bible. And I go, well, partially, but really, the reason that I do these things is because I want to invigorate you to reach Jewish people also, and also pray and support and partner with us so that we can reach Jewish people with the gospel, not only where I live, but wherever Jewish people might live. Chosen People Ministries, if you haven't heard of it, it's been around for 127 years. We were founded by a Hungarian rabbi who moved to New York City from from uh, Hungary, and uh, he found Yeshua. He found this, this guy, Yeshua, that he had never heard before in this little Presbyterian mission on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He went in, it said, meeting for Jews. Now, as far as a model goes, <laughs> I wish we could do that today. Maybe in a few places we can, but man, I wish we could do that today. He walked in and he heard in Yiddish a message, very Jewish message, about the Messiah who had already come that he had never heard of, Yeshua. He was given a New Testament, a Brit Hadashah, in Yiddish, and he accepted the Messiah. So 127 years later, we are in 18 countries, reaching Jewish people all around the world. Technically, we are the largest organization, the most staff reaching Jewish people. I'm very proud of our organization. We are made up of Jewish people and Gentile people, all who love the Lord, all who love their Savior, and all who love the Jewish people. We reach Jewish people in a lot of different ways, from planting congregations to doing kids' camps. Uh, right now, obviously, our ministry, for example, in Israel has changed tremendously over the past week. So in, in Jerusalem and in uh, Tel Aviv, we are housing people and ministering to people who have left from the south of Israel. Although, this morning I'm getting reports that friends in Tel Aviv are, are receiving rockets as well. So uh, that is weighing heavy, on, I'm sure, on all of our hearts. So uh, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of Israel, and we pray for the hearts of the Jewish people to turn to their Savior. And we pray for the, I mean, nothing would stop the rockets like the hearts of Arabs to turn to their Savior as well. So, let me pray to begin. Avinovim Malkeinu, our Father and our King. I ask that you would humble us today. It's not a fun thing to ask, but I ask it anyway. Father, I ask that you would enrich the words that we are going to hear. Father, I pray that I would not speak presumptuously, that these words would be inspired by you, and that they may encourage, that they may challenge, and that we may learn together. And Father, I pray that you would use the words to uh, invigorate us so that when we leave here, we might share the incredible message of hope that we have because of the gospel. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I was raised in a mixed marriage household, which means I have one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent. And when people ask what that was like, I tell them it was amazing. Because in December... We had Hanukkah, and we had Christmas. And so, when I was reaping the benefits of eight nights of gifts as an only child, and I was an only child for a while, all my friends at school, at least most of them, were writing their Christmas list, and I was already getting all the gifts. It was fantastic. And then Christmas came, and it was even better. And then, when I was about eight years old, my father's boss, a Christian man, invited him to a church. At this church... He was told by his pastor that we were going to have a Jewish speaker who was going to share with us about Jesus Christ and Passover. Invite all of your Jewish friends. In the D.C. area, a lot of Jewish people. So, my father's boss invited him. Now, my father had never stepped foot into an evangelical 
church before. I think maybe he had been to a few Catholic services for friends, kids, christenings. But my father, not wanting to say no to his boss and probably being prompted by the Lord in hindsight, decides to go. So we go. And at the front of this church, there's the Passover. And I don't need to go through all the Passover with you. I'm pretty sure you understand this whole idea about Passover. But my father sees this demonstration and he is shocked to his core because my father grew up pretty religious, okay? He would have called himself conservadox. And they lived within walking distance of the synagogue. My father was the president, uh, my grandfather was the president of the synagogue. And there were thoughts at one point of my, my father being the cantor of the congregation. But, like is also very normal, at the age of 13, after my father's bar mitzvah, he walked away from the synagogue. Uh, even though he was still Jewish, he still did the Jewish things, quote-unquote, he didn't want much to do with God. And it wasn't until he was almost 32 years old when he was invited to this church that all of a sudden he started reconnecting with God. Albeit, every single year of our life we celebrated Hanukkah. Every single year of our life we celebrated Passover. Even when my father wasn't a God-fearing Jew necessarily. In fact, when my father felt guilty, I remember him taking me to the synagogue for Rosh Hashanah and I loved it because there was apples and honey. And by the way, cheesecake. I mean, can you get better than Jewish food on holidays? You have hamantaschen, cheesecake, you have basically hash browns on Hanukkah, you know, with latkes. It's fantastic. We don't remember Yom Kippur because we don't eat, but, you know, at the end we eat a lot, okay? Um, but my father brought me, I think, when I was little because he wanted to leave because I would get antsy. So he could say, well, at least I went to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah if he felt a little guilty, and then he would leave because I was getting bored. Um, but it, when we went to this church, my father saw this Passover demonstration, and it was too coincidental to be a coincidence. In fact, that morning after the demonstration, which was done by another Jewish man who grew up the exact same way my father did in the same place my father did, a Jewish man in that church gave his heart to the Lord. But it wasn't my father. My father was angry. How dare how dare you try to connect those dots? Jesus is Christian and Passover is Jewish. They'll never mix. In fact, my father ran down the front aisle, stuck his finger in that man's face and says, you're dead wrong. And over the next few months, my father sought to prove him wrong. Because even though my father wasn't sort of a God-fearing man, he was still very Jewish. Born in 1950, when everybody around him was pretty much Jewish, he said, I know there's one thing you can't do as a Jewish person, and that is believe in Jesus. You can live any lifestyle. You can love anyone you want. You could be a Republican. It doesn't matter. Just, thank you for the joke. Okay, good. I wanted to see that you're awake. Just don't believe in him. And so, this man would come over to my house once a week, and my father started talking to his rabbi again said, hey, there's this Meshuggan, a guy who says you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. What do I say to him? And so every week my father would come at this man with objections. And every week this man would open the scripture, not to the New Testament, because my father wouldn't tolerate that. He would open to the Tanakh. He would say, what does the Lord have to say about that? He would turn the book around and push it toward my father. That made my dad even more angry. Because my dad didn't want to argue with him, he wanted to argue with the guy across the table. But you can't argue with the Scripture. We'll get to the Scripture component of the message later. I'm going to touch on that. And after a few months, my father finally relented. He read Isaiah 53, and it was Daniel 9, the prophecy of the weeks, when he finally realized that the Messiah of Israel had come, and he put his faith in him. I was nine years old at that point, almost. I gave my faith, I, I put my faith in Yeshua about a year and a half later. My family started walking with the Lord. We started attending this congregation even before my father uh, accepted the Lord. And all of a sudden, my father saw, oh my gosh, there's Jewish people just like me in marriages just like my father's. One Jewish, one Gentile, had kids my age, and they're all saying the Shema, they all live in Jewish ways. They have Jewish last names. Their kids are being bar and bat mitzvahed. They eat locks. I mean, what else is there? My father recognized you could be Jewish and believe in Jesus. So we started living this way, and I didn't know anything different. 
So I put my faith in Yeshua when I was about 10 years old after watching one of those cheesy Christian cartoons about how Paul was willing to go through all the craziness, all the surus, all of the, the trouble that he was willing to go through just because he knew that the message that he was sharing was worth it. And at 10 years old, that message really impacted me, and I thought, well, if he thought that it was worth being beaten and hidden and lowered over a wall, maybe it's important for me. And I think it's, it's not ironic, it's actually fitting, that as Paul was the missionary to the Goyim, the, the Gentiles, the nations, he still loved the Jewish people, as you know. He went to the synagogues in every city. And 2,000 years later, he reached a little Jewish boy in suburban Washington, D.C. with the gospel. I gave my faith then. But let me ask this question. How, I don't have any, do I have any teenagers in here? Enthusiasm. Woo! Okay, how many of you have teenagers? Okay, how many have been a teenager? How many of your husbands act like teenagers? Okay. Oh, my wife put up her hand. Great. Let me ask you this question. How much do teenagers think they know? How much do they actually know? Not much. <laughs> Rabbi John was being uh, generous by saying not much. Usually everybody says nothing. Uh, I, was, I was typical, man. I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew secrets to life. I thought that what I saw in the media, and this was before social media, that's how I should be living my life. And the more that I pursued that, the more miserable I became. Why? Because any joy, any sense of value that I felt from pursuing what the world says was important was incredibly fleeting. And so I just had to have more and more of it. If anybody has ever done drugs, what I'm told is, uh, the more and more drugs you do, the more and more drugs you have to do. And this was sort of like an emotional drug. You had to always feel important, always feel a sense of value. And yet, it didn't last. And so I found myself at the age of 19, sophomore in college, screaming profanities at the top of my lungs in the middle of a townhouse development in suburban Maryland. 2 a.m. in the morning, cops are called, my friends get angry because I get them in trouble. We're sat down on the curb, accused of vandalism nearby, patted down, make sure we don't have anything. And for, for somebody like me who was so petrified at what everybody else thought of them, because that's really what I was, I was spiraling at this point. When your friends get angry at you because you caused them to be in trouble with the police, that's pretty bad. And that was sort of my rock bottom, and I finally went to my parents, and I said, I don't want to live this way anymore. Everything that I try to do in order to make my life better fails miserably. So they introduced me to a friend of theirs who discipled young men. And for the first time, I started reading Scripture with him. And I started recognizing that after I put my faith in Yeshua, I hadn't lived like I put my faith in Yeshua. I was living as if my life was empty, like my life was, was a loser sort of a life. And in fact, what the Bible says about somebody who has been forgiven and made alive in the Messiah is that you are alive and you are victorious and that you have power in the Lord. And yet I wasn't living that way. I was living a lie. The truth was God was alive in me and I didn't need to look for value in anybody else because he had given me value. And that changed my life. So as, as sort of a way to mark this occasion, I decided I wanted to go away. Because in the Bible, Moses is in the wilderness, Jesus is in the wilderness, Paul's in the wilderness. I had this idea that if you go to the wilderness, you're going to meet God and he's going to sort of help you. All right? So very next day, I'm walking at my university and it says on the ground, free trip to Israel. I thought to myself, that sounds perfect, so I sign up for this trip. When I call, they say, okay, three questions. Are you Jewish? Yes. Have you been on this trip before? No. Are you between 18 and 24? Yes. Come sign up. So I go on this trip full of 100 other D.C., Baltimore area Jewish kids. Now, when I say Jewish, keep in mind, they're Jewish in blood only. Most of these kids are not religious whatsoever. The Orthodox kids had their own trip, okay? They wouldn't slum it with us secular Jews, okay? So we go on this trip. When do we leave? December 25th. It's a great day to fly. Uh, so nobody's at the airport. So we leave for Israel on December 25th. I get to Israel, and I'm thinking, this is going to be fantastic. But I told myself, I gave myself a rule. Don't tell them you believe in Jesus. 
I knew my people. Like, I grew up doing Jewish things. I was bar mitzvahed. When we mourned, we mourned with uh, Shiva. When we got married, we got married under the chuppah. When we had parties, we danced the hora, and we lifted up chairs. These are things we did. I was thoroughly Jewish, okay? But I knew my people well enough to know this would be an issue. But I also told myself, if they ask you, don't deny him. Okay. To make a long story short, four days in, I offered that I believe in Jesus to a group of uh, increasingly getting drunk college students, not myself, but the others. They look at me and they're puzzled because I say, well, this is what Yeshua had to say about that. And they look and they go, who's Yeshua? You know, Jewish people don't know the name Yeshua. If you're in Israel and you say Yeshua, they think you mean Joshua ben Nun, Yeshua ben Nun, Joshua the son of Nun, right? They said, who's Yeshua? I said, well, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. I'm Jewish. That's what I call him. And they looked at me. You mean like Jesus Christ, Jesus? You know, how dare you bring that guy up? I said, yeah, that's him, but I call him Yeshua. Do you believe in him? Yes, I do. And there were crickets. They didn't know what to do with that. And I thought, okay, fantastic. It's out in the open. Nobody cares until the next night when uh, somebody decides that he doesn't like what I believe. Apparently, he had gotten around and uh, he curses me out, and I don't even argue with him. I just leave the room. The leaders come to me, ask me what happened. I told them I was verbally assaulted. They said, ah, you have to leave the trip. Why? They didn't answer. Is it because of Jesus? They didn't answer. Is it because you think I'm not Jewish anymore? Because synagogues tell people that, Christians tell people that after a Jewish person accepts Jesus? They didn't answer. So I flew home. My father happened to be in New York City at the time. He picks me up from JFK, and the first thing after a hug he asks me is, are you angry at them? And I thought for a moment, and I said, Dad, it had never occurred to me to be angry at them. And by the way, they're not them, they're us. I said, Dad, I, I've been fig trying to figure this out. It's confusing to me. But, Dad, I, I want to know one thing, because I was more Jewish, quote-unquote, than all those kids on the trip, right? I knew all the prayers. I could say everything backwards and forwards. Some of them didn't know Hebrew. I knew enough Hebrew to get through my bar, my bar mitzvah at the time. I did things like Shabbat. I go to services. We do all those things I told you about just a second ago. I was more Jewish than they were. Shouldn't that make a difference? Why would they reject me? And that was, my, that was my experience. It wasn't in the wilderness where I got my burning bush. It was back at JFK Airport waiting for taxi cabs. When he asked me this, I said, Dad, why would they reject me? And then I realized all at once, my people didn't reject me. My people rejected our Messiah. And my burning bush was, oh my goodness. Because it was personal for me. All of a sudden, that was the moment where I recognized that my people were desperately, hopelessly lost. And my heart broke into a million pieces. So turn with me to Romans. And this is not going to be a Romans 11 message, I promise. But I want you to turn to Romans. Romans chapter 10. Here is the first lesson in how to do Jewish evangelism. And frankly, this is the first lesson in how to do evangelism. Okay? When I was there, my heart broke into a million pieces. If you don't have a broken heart for the lost, you will not do effective outreach. Period. If your heart isn't broken, and we have a tendency in our culture to be incredibly prideful. We are rich in the United States. We are blessed in the United States. Frankly, as we're coming down here, my wife and I are going, you guys are blessed in Kansas because we are masking up everywhere. I mean, the fact that my kids don't have to, they're surprised that you don't have to wear masks down here in some places. We are blessed and we get prideful and we focus on ourselves, but the moment that we don't and we recognize that other people are desperately lost, 
and our heart breaks, that's when we will be more effective. Even if you don't know all the who's and what's and ins and outs of how to do evangelism and what to say, if your heart isn't broken, you will not be very successful. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 1. It's very simple. We look at it all the time. We understand it's Paul's heart, but look what he says. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. His heart's desire and prayer. Here's a good way to tell if your heart is broken for the lost. Does your heart ache and do you pray for those people who are lost? Period. Does your heart ache and do you pray for those people who are lost? If, you, if it's not, then you're probably not sharing the gospel with anybody. I'll be very honest. And if that hits your heart and you don't like me right now, talk to God about it. <laughs> Frankly, if you don't recognize the gift that you have in the Messiah Yeshua, the freedom that you have, if there's anxiety in your life, reach out to Him. If there's anger in your life, reach out to Him. If there's depression in your life, reach out to Him. That's the freedom that we have. Other people don't have that. If you don't want other people to be free, you're not going to be successful at outreach. You know? It's like when you eat at a fantastic restaurant and you go on Yelp or you go on Google and you give it four stars or five stars because you want everybody else to have the exact same Kansas barbecue that you just had, which we did yesterday. It was fantastic, by the way. So what does he say in Romans chapter 10? And I know you've read this a lot as well. But look down to verse 14. It says this. He's making a very logical argument. His heart aches. He's speaking to Gentiles in Rome. He says this, How then shall they, speaking of the Jewish people, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You have to be intentional. Sure, some people, it just happens. And for them, I say they have the gift of evangelism, as the Bible says. But Paul says you need to be intentional with your broken heart. Living a, word, a life worth being jealous of, as Romans 11 says, is fantastic. And yes, it will prompt people to ask you the question, why are you different? And we're going to talk about different in a second. But it will ask that. But that's not enough. People don't come to faith because they see you serve another person. People ask questions because they see you serve another person. People come to faith because they hear the word of the Lord and they see the works of the Lord. It's not enough to do and go through the motions. It's not, it's not going to win anybody over just to give them something or to buy them something or to serve them. They need to hear what the Lord is doing. They need to hear the word of God. My father needed to see the words of his own God prophesy about Jesus and see the reactions of people who have accepted Jesus, both in his own life and also in the Scripture. So when he goes to the New Testament, he goes, wow, what God says in the Hebrew Scriptures actually bears fruit in the New Testament. Amen. Your first guiding post this morning is you have to have a broken heart. And if you don't have a broken heart for the lost and specifically for Jewish people, Ask the Lord to break your heart. It's going to be painful. It's going to be sad. But it's going to make you reach out to the Lord all the more. Second, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Your first one is uh, you need a broken heart. You need to understand what God has given you as a gift. Okay, here's your second guideline. My wife and I got married uh, when we were living in New York City. My keepa is not... I shaved my head too recently. That's the problem. Uh, my wife and I got married when we lived in New York City. Uh, we met in Brooklyn, uh, and it, it, is a, it is a sordid story. She was my intern. So, I don't know if you're allowed to laugh at that one. I give you permission. Uh, you know, God be praised, we have three children, and we've been married almost ten years, so... I'm happy about that. Um, 
so we got married when we lived in Brooklyn, uh, and we did ministry together, and she was working, and she was finishing her degree. Uh, she went back to school when we were living in Brooklyn. In fact, my son's middle name is Brooklyn because that's where we met. And she went to school at Brooklyn College. Now, if you're not familiar with Brooklyn, let me just tell you, almost half of Brooklyn is Jewish. <laughs> and when I say that, it's not an exaggeration. You're talking somewhere between 40 and 45 percent is somehow Jewish. Whether they're Orthodox or whether they're secular, they're Jewish. So when my wife goes to Brooklyn College, lots of Jewish kids. Jewish women, Jewish men, Jewish Orthodox men, Jewish Orthodox women. And I can't tell you the number of times that my wife had the opportunity to share Jesus because she wasn't Jewish. I can't tell you why. Well, my wife wore a Mogan David, a Star of David around her neck. It was something that I gave her as a wedding gift. And so they all just thought she was Jewish. She had the star, right? She also talked the talk because she lived with me. <laughs> she also had a broken heart for my people, which is why she was an intern with Chosen People Ministries, because she wanted to reach Jewish people with the gospel. What better way to do it in New York, than in New York City with two million Jewish people? So there was one particular girl that uh, my wife sort of hit it off with and she really liked. They were in a study group together and they were talking about Jewish things as Jewish women tend to do. And then my wife realized, oh, they think I'm Jewish. <laughs> and instead of going with it, she actually sought to correct them because she wanted to be honest. She goes, oh, I'm not Jewish. What do you mean? Sort of motioning to her necklace. Oh, I, I'm, and, you know, she has a Jewish last name. Carp is Jewish. You're not Jewish? Then why do you have the star and what, your last name? Oh, I married a Jewish guy. Oh, you must have converted. No, I didn't convert. She goes, well, well I don't, I, how does that work? Oh, well, I'm actually a Christian, my wife says. She says, well, how does that work with your Jewish husband? And she says, well, he believes in Jesus too. Shock. This Orthodox girl had never experienced this. And meanwhile, my wife is in this group not only with one Orthodox girl, but with a second Orthodox girl. The one Orthodox girl, sort of interested. The other Orthodox girl goes in her head, we've crossed the line here. So then, my wife can talk the talk. My wife can walk the walk. My wife was, was uh, understanding of the Scriptures. I would argue more than these two Orthodox women. And my wife recognized the opportunity that she had. There was something different about her than those two girls. And it was piquing the interest of at least one of them. And she knew that because there was disagreement. Disagreement can be a really good thing when you handle it well. Okay? So my wife took the opportunity to play the innocent Christian card. And here's how that looked. Yeah, and she started telling, us, telling them about, uh, about our life together and how we live sort of a Jewish life, and we also believed in Jesus, and we read from the Hebrew Scriptures, and we also read from the New Testament. And she said, did you guys know that Jesus is talked about in the Hebrew Bible? Now, my wife, my wife knows this, okay. But they go, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that she pulls out her, her laptop as they're studying, and she pulls up Isaiah 53. And both of those girls read Isaiah 53. And after they're done, the first one who was interested says, I'm not saying I believe this. That's interesting because that's the reaction, right? When you read the scripture. But that sounds a lot like that guy. The other one says, we shouldn't talk about religion. Let's get back to work. Meanwhile, that girl goes home and emails my wife, if you want to talk more about this, here's the, an email of somebody I know you can talk about because she was very uncomfortable. It turns out she gave my wife the email of an anti-missionary. <laughs> but the other girl was so intrigued because this girl was different. So look what happens in Acts chapter 17. Verse, uh, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. There Paul, as was his custom, went in for three Sabbaths, reasoned, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, 
Notice from where? From the scriptures. Explaining and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Yeshua whom I preach to you is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and a great number of devout Greeks. So these were Gentiles who also feared God. They didn't know about Jesus. So Jews and Gentiles accepting Yeshua together. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. What were they envious of? Maybe they were envious of Paul and, and Silas gaining attention. Maybe they were envious of all of a sudden these Gentiles glomming on such a Jewish concept. We don't know. But what we do know is that they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason where they thought they were, and sought to bring them out. Eventually what happens is they kick them out of Thessalonica. So they move on. They move on. Look at verse 10. They moved to Berea. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So once again, they do exactly the same thing. Someone rejects me. That's okay. Here's another lesson. This is not easy. Reaching people with the gospel sometimes is easy, but oftentimes, especially as our culture gets further and further away from God, and by the way, that actually just makes sense. A sinful culture doesn't want anything to do with God, okay? So that makes sense. I expect that from culture, period. But as the culture moves further and further away from God, it gets harder and harder. And as Jewish people get more and more hardened or more and more secular, it's going to be more difficult. I didn't sign up for this ministry because of the numbers of people that would come to faith. I signed up for this ministry because God broke my heart for them. I knew that we don't go through valleys and plains of ease. We climb mountains to share the gospel with people. So when you hear stories of all these people, of Jewish people coming to faith in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, praise God, it just doesn't seem to be happening as much like that. This is challenging, and you will be rejected. That's okay. That's a good thing. Yeshua says you will be rejected for his name's sake. In fact, when my father first came to faith, six weeks later he was in New York City sharing the gospel. And when he was rejected by his first Jewish person, he took it personally. Until someone came alongside of him and said, hey Dennis, what's the matter? There's more Jewish people over there. And for some reason that simple phrase made it, oh, okay, let's go share with them. He was feeling sorry for himself because he was rejected by a fellow Jew instead of going and sharing with the other people who might be more receptive. This is not going to be easy. Paul was rejected. Yeshua was rejected. The disciples, many of them, were murdered because of the Messiah. It's not going to be easy. And if it's easy, either the Lord's giving you a special gift or something's wrong. But let's see what happens. Verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that those in Thessalonica, uh, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out where these things were so. If you see the repetitiveness of the scripture being involved, that's a good thing. Verse 12, therefore many of them believed and not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the Lord was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Why? Because Jewish people are disinclined to the gospel. Expect opposition. Expect it. It's actually sort of a, a badge of honor if you get opposition. Doesn't mean it's going to be fun, but it means it's worth it. So look what happens. These are sort of side lessons, okay? Have a broken heart. There's going to be opposition. Use Scripture. Now watch what happens. The Spirit of God moves Paul to Athens. And my wife and I have been to Athens. We've seen this. And I'm trying to just imagine what it would be like to see what happened at Athens. This is the most amazing opportunity taken by Paul, okay? Verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Again, his heart is broken for the people, knowing that they're putting their faith and efforts and energy and hope into nothingness. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, that was his heart, and the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now watch this. 
Verse 18, it's really interesting. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to uh, them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak. Now stop right there. Who did he encounter after he was done with the Jewish people? People who thought differently than he did. Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in the city of Athens were always at each other, but they did it in a really, I would say, healthy way. They would go to the public square and they would debate philosophy. Stoics and Epicureans had fundamentally different views on life and the nature of being. On one hand, one group of people thought that after you die, there was nothingness, so you might as well live it up as much as you can, sort of a hedonism, okay? Enjoy, give in to everything, eat, be merry, find your love, whatever your passion is, just as much as you can, frankly, and that's what a lot of our culture is like today. On the other hand, People thought that somehow you connected to the universe and it really mattered what you did in your lifetime. And so they were the people who said, no, we need to deny ourselves. We needed to stay as even as we can. We needed to not show a ton of emotion. So you can see how these two, the Stoics and the Epicureans, would kind of disagree with each other. And so Paul, seeing an opportunity, said, I can share Yeshua with them. But did he share it in a Jewish way? No, he didn't. He shared it in a way that was palatable for them, but was honest to the Scripture. Why? Because he had a broken heart, and he was utilizing something very significant. He was different. Not only different in his actions, but different in his faith and different in his heritage. My wife utilized the fact that she was different than these girls, so that she could start up conversation. She knew what she knew. She knew Jewish prayers. She knew Jewish life. Now, they they knew Jewish life more than she did, but she knew enough that she could talk with them, but she also recognized that there was value in being different. Didn't Paul say in Romans 11, I magnify my ministry if by any means the Gentiles come to faith, or the Jewish people come to faith because you Gentiles are receiving the Lord? So look at what he does. Uh, They wanted to know because he was different. It's sort of the opposites attract mentality, right? Verse 20, For you are uh, bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want, we want to know what these things mean. Because they were hungry, they were interested, they were both trying to find meaning, they were just doing it in two opposite ways, and Paul's sitting there with something even even more different than what they already knew. Verse 21, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Verse 22, When you're in a conversation, okay, watch what Paul does here, okay? I was actually taught this by a Jewish group when debating uh, politics in the Middle East, but I think it's really apropos and helpful when sharing the gospel, okay? The first thing Paul does is he shows that he understands them a little bit. The second thing Paul does is challenges them. The third thing he does is reframes the argument. And the last thing he does is offer something different. Okay? Understand, challenge, reframe, and then offer something different. First, he says in verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the people at the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He didn't say you are wrong. He said you are very religious. It's very true. This week, I was... uh, I was... I have a normal discipleship meeting with a young Jewish believer who came to faith uh, during the pandemic... And we've been praying for his family, uh, and I've been praying for him because he doesn't like his family because they don't like him. (laughs) They don't agree with him. So, somehow the Lord got through to him, and he started having grace for his brother, 
and his brother joined us on the call. So all of a sudden, it turned into an evangelism uh, Zoom call, which was fantastic. And then on top of that, uh, I, was teaching, I was teaching the first brother how to share the gospel. <laughs> so it was fantastic. But this brother, he was Jewish, but it didn't matter. He didn't care about the Jewish scriptures. And when the believer, Jason, was talking to the brother, who's not a believer, Brett, when Jason said, this is our scripture, arguing that you should believe this scripture because we're Jewish, I said, Jason, you don't understand. Brett doesn't think that those scriptures are valid, even though he's Jewish. But he's willing to learn. In other words, he was willing to read the Bible with us, so let's take that as an opportunity. Instead of pushing back on him and saying, you're just wrong, say, hey, wait a second, this is an opportunity. I understand what he thinks. He thinks we're all connected in some consciousness. I mean, it's not, not a new thing that he thinks. So if he's willing to listen, let's listen. But don't be in uh, such opposition. So he says, uh, verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now here's where he challenges them. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He addresses that because uh, He already gained their attention by saying, hey, listen, I see that you're religious. But He remembers He saw the idols, and He says, let me just tell you, it's not because of human hands that we can worship God. It's because He is transcendent. He's actually bigger than all of us. He's not made with gold and silver and temples. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and all, uh, to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What he does there is he adds validity to the fact that you may be Athenian, he may be a Jew, but you can both be in together with the same God because this God indeed made all nations. Don't you remember? Of Ishmael, he actually said, I will make you the father of many nations. Okay, that's, that's literally what happened. At the Tower of Babel, God dispersed people. He, made him, he was the father of many nations. He actually cares for everybody in the entire world, whether you're Jewish or whether you're not Jewish. But we can come together because of that unity. Verse 27, so, uh, so, that they should speak, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. It does take a search, but He is findable and approachable. He was using this difference. He was using the fact that they loved something different so that they could talk to Him so that he could talk to them. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. He even quotes one of their poets that sort of uh, rings true of the Lord. Now, if you were to go through the rest of this, and I encourage you to do that, he actually talks to the people who thought there was nothingness after death and that they should have a very even mentality. And he also talks to the people who thought... Uh, there was nothingness after death, and they should indulge in whatever, and talks to the people who thought there should be evenness. He actually addresses both points in one simple gospel sermon because he talks about Jesus at the very end, and he welcomes everybody. Now, I realize I'm telling you that as a Jew, he used his, difference, his differentness as a Jew to talk to Gentiles. I think that's true for everybody in this world. Yes, there are times when a Jewish person can reach a Jewish person better. I think that's not very often, though. And I'm a Jewish person doing this for a living, okay? More often than not, sometimes it's a Jewish young man who can reach a Gentile old man. Sometimes it's a, a woman who can reach a man. Sometimes it's a Gentile who can reach a Jew and a Jew who can reach a Gentile. That's exactly what happens here with Paul. But I think there's a lesson here that we can utilize our differentness but our knowledge at the same time to reach people with the gospel. We're not supposed to be something we're not. We're supposed to be accurate. 
We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to take into account what people are going through. And I think we're supposed to ask questions. But we are not to minimize the gospel. Not to minimize the gospel. He doesn't do that here. And I would encourage you, uh, turn with me to... (coughs) Excuse me. To... I missed my notes here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 22. Once again, Paul speaking uh, to the nations. He says this, starting in verse 22. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. He obviously recognizes there's a difference. But we preach Messiah crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness. There is a temptation in our culture, especially in the United States today, to water down the gospel, to change the gospel, to make it more palatable, to make it more friendly, to make it more inclusive. Paul says, I teach Messiah crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block because the Messiah is not supposed to, to die. And to the Greeks, they just think it's foolishness. And he says it doesn't matter. If it's the truth, it's the truth. In that same evangelistic conversation that I just told you about with Jet and Brett, uh, Jason and Brett, he said, well, uh, Brett, the non-believer, said, well, so it seems like you believe something different than I. Like, everything is almost the same except there's this one thing about Jesus dying for your sins. I just believe that you can be good without him, and you think you can be good only with him. And I go... Okay, so that's what you think is different. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, isn't that a little bit dissuasive? Dissuasive, that's the word he used. And I said, if you think it's not attractive, then yes, I guess it would be dissuasive. He goes, well, isn't that kind of exclusive? And I go, again, I suppose if you think it's exclusive, then yes, it's exclusive. But that's what we believe. We believe that we're with sin, and the only way to remove our sin is through the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of the dead. And I was tempted. And it's really easy to try to hedge yourself, try to change the message. But I knew that is the thing that separates someone who is regenerated and someone who is not. Someone who seeks after themselves and someone who seeks after God. Period. If you seek after yourself, you're not going to want to find God as the solution to your problems. If you recognize that you are not the solution to your problems and you're looking for something outside of you, you might encounter Jesus, the guy who died for your sins, to make you new. Is it exclusive? Yes. Is it foolishness to those who think they are wise? Yes. Is it a stumbling block to Jews who believe in a Messiah who's going to be king and not die? Yes. All of those things. That's why you're going to get objections. That's why you're going to have rejection. But it's not you they're rejecting. It's their Savior. And He's still reaching His hand out even after they reject. Last thing I want to say this morning, because there's a lot more I could say. Oh, goodness. Which one do I share? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, please. I want to highlight this, that uh, one of the things that we need to be doing in Jewish evangelism is praying. So I'm just going to say that without sharing the story. Maybe I can share it later. There's lots of praying stories. Deuteronomy chapter 4, though. This is the importance of Scripture. And remember what Paul said to the people in Athens. We have to grope and search for the Lord. And He is findable. The Scripture tells us that over and over and over again. I was uh, sharing the gospel for months with a young Israeli in New York City, not because I was Jewish, but because a Gentile went into his kosher pizzeria and sat down and ordered horrible kosher pizza. Kosher pizza is horrible. 
Soy Peroni, guys, come on. <laughs> Only to share Jesus with this, this young Israeli. And when this young Israeli, Moti, recognized that this guy wasn't Jewish and was studying Hebrew and just wanted to talk to him, he says, why do you care about all these Jewish things? And he says, because my Messiah is Jewish. And if my Messiah is Jewish, then I want to love his people. That was so simple, right? It's so simple. And so he was like, wow. And so this Gentile guy, believer, introduced uh, Moti to a bunch of his other friends, including me. And I started studying with him. And I started opening the Bible with him. And I gave him his first Hebrew Bible, Old and New Testament. But for a while, we didn't even open the New Testament because he grew up Orthodox in Israel. And he needed to see, wait a second, I think you guys know the Bible better than me, but I'm supposed to be the Orthodox Jew. How do you know the Bible better? So we just started reading the Bible, and so I would show him prophecy after, pro after prophecy. We would talk about the nature of sin because he was really interested. We would talk about the nature of hope, everything you can imagine, all from the Hebrew Scriptures. And then finally, after Passover, he invited me to Passover. His parents flew in from Israel. They surprised him, and we had Passover, which was wonderful, even though it was in like the dingiest Brooklyn basement apartment. And then afterwards, he called me, and he was freaking out because he says, Ryan, you'll never guess what happened. I said, what? He said, my mom started yelling at me, saying, Ryan shouldn't be your friend. He's a bad influence on you. And worst of all, he's not even a Jew. And he said, mom, that's not true. He, you know, he's more Jewish than I am. <laughs> For him, that made a difference. But keep in mind, the first time that I met him, uh, the second time that I met him, it was, he was amazed that he saw black people and Hispanic people and Asian people and Jewish people and white people all worshiping the same God, singing things in Hebrew, singing things in English. He goes, this is crazy. You'll never see this in Israel. My sister was standing right next to me. She had flown in from Israel, and she goes, in Hebrew, actually, you see a lot of this in Israel. And he blew his mind. So after Passover, he's like, she's freaking out, and she left because I told her that we had been studying together. And I said, well, go find her. She's in the middle of Brooklyn, the middle of the night. You know, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't even speak English. He goes, I have to let her cool off, and I'll definitely go find her. But Ryan, I have to know, is he the Messiah? I said, Moti, we can go over the Scripture again. I'm very happy to do that. The more we read the Bible together, the better. Because we would spend usually between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Because that's how long it took for him to get back from his pizzeria. And thank God we lived like five blocks from each other in Brooklyn. I said, we can read the Bible some more. I said, there's really only one thing you can do. And he's like, what's that? And I said, do you remember what the Torah says? I knew he did. So I said, I said go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Starting in verse 29. I said, Moti, God tells our people that we will sin and we will pray the price for that, but that he will be gracious to us. Look at verse 29. It says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Number one, it's the scripture. You can't argue with God. Number two, it begs the reader to do something specific. I said, Moti, with everything that is in you, seek the Lord. Ask Him if He, Yeshua, is the Messiah that our people have been waiting for. And if He is, if He died for our sins and rose from the grave. He says, okay, you have to know that you are not the only one that is the witness. The Scripture is the witness, and the Lord is the one who gifts salvation. Faith is a gift of God, it says in the Scripture. It is not up to you to convince anybody. Here's what it is. Ask them if they will ask God. And it's only them who knows if they're seeking with all their heart and soul. So the very next day, Moti messages me and says, Ryan, how do you tell your parents you believe in Yeshua? <laughs> Moti, we're not having this conversation on Facebook. So then, it shows you how long ago this was. People were still using Facebook uh, for Messenger. Maybe some of you do that. I don't know. <laughs> 
So the next day we meet on the subway. We're both going into Manhattan, me to my office, him to the pizzeria. And I said, you tell me what you're talking about. And he says, I believe in Jesus. I looked at him straight in the eye. I said, no, you don't. He said, what? Because we're friends at this point. He's been hanging out with my community. I had a community called Metro Moses in New York City of young people. Um, He's been hanging out. Everybody likes him. He likes them. He wanted to know why we're happier than all his friends. That's why he really got interested. I said, you tell me what you believe. And he says, I believe God made me. I believe I sinned against him. I believe that separates me. And I believe that only Yeshua's death and resurrection can bring me in a right relationship with him. And last night I asked him to forgive me of my sins. And I start crying. And then I hug him. And then all the people in the subway are staring at us. So he's baptized. He's immersed off of the coast of of Brooklyn at Brighton Beach, surrounded by believing friends and non-believing friends. So he had the opportunity to share the gospel even more. And then he goes back to Israel. And now he's become sort of an internet celebrity with videos online. You may have heard of this guy before. Um, And he's actually doing something really new. It's really cool. He's doing online live Hebrew video games. That way you know it's only Jewish people listening because it's in Hebrew. And uh, then he talks to them about the Lord while he plays popular video games. Hundreds and thousands of people watch this thing at the same time, and then they watch it later after the broadcast. Anyway, those are a few of the stories. Broken heart. You can't share the gospel if you don't know what you have and you don't have a broken heart for the lost. Number two, pray. Pray for people. If you can't talk to someone about Yeshua, talk to Yeshua about that someone. Number three, utilize the fact that you are different to engage in conversation. Differences are good. You just have to be gracious and realize the opportunities. Number L, whatever I'm on. (laughs) Um, expect opposition. Opposition means you're doing something right, usually. Number, whatever, use Scripture. Because without Scripture, it's not going to happen. You're just going to go back and forth in philosophical circles unless you get grounded in something. If you can verbally say the words of Scripture, I believe that's powerful enough. If you can quote somebody, Isaiah 53 or Romans 3.23, that's great. If they won't look directly at the page, you can tell them what the rabbis have said, Rabbi Paul. You can tell them what Luke has said, what Matthew has said, what Isaiah has said. These are some of the ways to reach Jewish people. Now, we could talk about more specifics of reaching the Jewish people in Wichita and in Kansas, and I would love to do that. But these will help you no matter where you go and no matter where you are. One more thing before I close in prayer. Everyone should have received one of these. If you did, grab one of those. I want to do an ancient Jewish tradition with you. Did nobody get one? Okay. All right. So uh, I won't do the tradition, although there was a joke in there. You would have liked the joke. Um, Like I told you before, I'm a missionary reaching Jewish people with the gospel. When I go back to Chicago, and I have led a Messianic congregation in the city before, and we did restart recently uh, another Messianic fellowship in the city, and we're looking to start more. We don't only do things through Messianic congregations, by the way, Um, but one of the things we do is we raise up a lot of young new missionaries. So I have a number of young people I'm working with right now. We're starting, we're going to start college ministry, Lord willing, um, as soon as the colleges let us back on campus. Um, We're going to start young adult Bible studies. We are doing a number of things to reach Jewish people the gospel. We're doing a lot of things online as well. If you would like to know more about specifically what the Carp family is doing in the Chicagoland area, which is where we live, or about what Chosen People is doing, or about how you can get involved, there is a slip that you can give me before you leave today. Just fill that out, uh, and you will get our monthly prayer letter so you can know how to pray and know how you can get involved. Number two, on the back of that, there's a place where you can put the name and address of Jewish people you know so that we can at least pray for them and possibly send them some gospel material. Do not worry. They will not know it's coming from you. <laughs> okay? Um, so utilize that as well. There's no obligation to give or anything like that, so don't feel like that. But uh, I have some materials in the back, some gospel, some for you as well. They're all free. So we can talk back there after the service. 
Um, and lastly, I do a once-a-month Bible study on Monday evenings, uh, the third Monday of the month. If you're interested, I'll put you on that list, and you'll get information about that. Just not forget anything, right? Probably not. Okay, we can talk some more. I'd love to talk with you and schmooze afterwards. Of you Volcano, our Father and our King, we praise you and we honor you. You say in Genesis uh, to Abram, you say that those who bless the Jewish people will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. Father, I love your promises because you are true and you show us what honesty and follow-through is. Lord, I ask for this congregation that as they bless Israel, that they would be blessed. Follow through on your promise. And Lord, I ask that their hearts would be broken for all people, including specifically the Jewish people. I ask, Lord, that you would bring Jewish people across the paths of everybody in this room so that they might be able to share the hope that they have. And Father, I pray that if anybody feels anxiety, that you would be with them and give them peace about sharing the gospel. I pray, Lord, that if anybody feels like they've made a quote-unquote mistake, Lord, that you would help them learn from that, but also assure them that you are bigger than any mistake that we have ever made uh, because you have given us your Son as our Savior. For all these things I ask in your Son's precious name. Amen.